Well, hello, everybody. It's that time again. The thing that you look forward to day after day. Because it's really the only thing that brings you joy anymore in this life. Which is tuning into this call-in program. Now, I don't know how much help I can be in terms of giving you other means of attaining fulfillment. But what I can provide is this occasional weekly or sometimes twice weekly solace whereby you listen to me speak on call for, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes and then I take your wonderful questions and comments. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. And uh, especially on this Easter weekend, I think it's more crucial than ever that we all sort of join together and appreciate the true Savior, which is the call it app. Anyway, <laughs> that's me killing a little bit of time so people can filter in to the room, by the way. Um, and I try to do it extemporaneously with Hopefully, a smidgen of mild humor. Um, so I'm still in uh, London, and as I often do, wherever I happen to be in the world, whether it's in the grand old US of A or here in Europe, although whether the UK is actually in Europe is a matter of fierce debate. Um, whether wherever I happen to be, I try to do a little bit of what you might call "quote unquote" journalism. Substack article that you may have seen that was published yesterday. Uh, what I've been doing is trying to get a better sense, to the extent I can, of the UK's role in the current war build-up initiative. Um, because it seems as though, in certain respects, UK government officials are actually more determined to institute proactive wartime measures than even the US, at least in some respects, not in every respect, but some. One being just, I guess, the symbolic significance and or the quote, uh, I would actually say the PR significance of uh, Boris Johnson, the prime minister, going to Kiev triumphantly last weekend on a uh, secret journey, which resulted in him striding through the streets with uh, the international folk hero Zelensky by his side. And uh, from that meeting came the declaration that the uh, UK would be sending additional weapons supplies, such as uh, you know, armored vehicles and missiles and such. You know, the standard batch. Although, as usual, somewhat escalated in its intensity. That's the pattern, by the way. And I know I might sound like a broken record on this if you've been following me for the past seven weeks or so on the subject, but 
really every passing week, there's a new form of escalation underway. I think that's worth being cognizant of because, you know, this, the, it really hasn't been that long that we've been in this unprecedented scenario where we're on the verge for the first time, really, of a potential hot war with Russia. Um, so these sort of seemingly small-scale increments of escalation are worth documenting pretty scrupulously, if at all possible. And, you know, what happened this week from the U.S. standpoint? Well, Biden one day decides to uh, go off script again in one of his speeches. He was in Iowa, I think, uh, discussing some sort of infrastructure project. And, uh, you know, who cares about that? So uh, he threw in a accusation that Putin is committing a genocide. And then when asked to clarify his remark, he quote-unquote doubled down on it. So that was a rhetorical escalation, a major rhetorical escalation on the part of uh, Biden. And conveniently enough, uh, two days later, Trump – Maybe it was a day later. Shortly thereafter, Trump goes on uh, Fox News on Handy's show, naturally, which is sort of like the Republican id. And uh, Trump goes out of his way to declare that Putin is committing a genocide. Now, I know for the average MSNBC viewer, that will still be automatically construed as just further evidence of this collusion plot between Trump and the Kremlin that stems back to 1987. And I'm not even kidding. There actually is a working theory on that. That that's what New York Magazine published on its cover in 2018. This wild, winding theory, explicated by uh, Mr. Jonathan Chait, about a collusion plot that literally went back to 1987. Um, so maybe the average MSNBC viewer just views this as another phase in that plot. Trump to go on Fox and declare that Putin's committing genocide. I think if you're uh, living in a more rational universe, you probably can understand that what it really seems to signify is this total intractable bipartisan, cross-partisan conversions around a fevered interpretation of the current war situation. And uh, what makes it really portentous is that Everybody across the entire political spectrum, seemingly, and this will get back to my whole UK point, but even in the US as well, leftists, liberals, conservatives, neocons, paleocons, maybe not quite as much paleocons, but pretty much everybody has a ideological motivator to be really fervently invested in this continued escalation. Um, and, of course, that goes for both Trump and Biden. So, you know, while everyone loves to bemoan the uh, partisan rancor that besets us, hopefully they can take some measure of relief in the fact that Biden and Trump have joined hands together on this issue and uh, have jointly denounced Putin for committing, quote, genocide. Now, I'd love to see what independent investigations that Donald Trump carried out to uh, ascertain the facts uh, that established that the genocide has taken place. 
That would be fascinating. Same goes for Biden. But, you know, we'll have to wait with bated breath for further information on that. Um, so anyway, you know, in a sense, the U.S. has been leading the charge on this, obviously. But also, in another sense, so it has the U.K., and that's taken the form of that trip by Boris Johnson last weekend to Kiev. Uh, but also, there are some less overt matters in which the U.K. is seeming to uh, go ahead of the curve on the nature of this uh, intervention. And one of them is just the outright advocacy for full-on intervention that you see even within the most respectable mainstream press. And so, for example, there's this um, MP named Tobias Elwood, who's Conservative Party MP, and... uh, you know, I was talking about this actually recently with some with a British journalist, and he sort of dismissed the significance of Ty- Tobias Elwood saying or doing anything because he's just a lowly backbencher, which I guess is true. But he also also the chairman of this Defense Select Committee in the Parliament, and you know he's a member of the Conservative Party, and there's an incumbent Conservative government. So, you know, just in the sense that if a member of Congress, you know, say the chairman of the House. Armed Services Committee or what have you, um, was proposing something somewhat wacky and uh, trying to get his fellow Democrats in the uh, White House to implement his proposal. I think that would be worth taking note of. Which is that he's been on a PR tour himself proposing that the UK needs to take its role at the, quote, vanguard of the Western military response to Ukraine. And what does he mean by that? Well, he means, uh, clearly, should be obvious what he means. He means that the UK should be spearheading intensified escalation in Ukraine. And what are some potential manifestations of that. Well, one thing he's gone around advocating for, and I learned this in part because I uh, participated in a supposedly off-the-record appearance that he made at a think tank, where else but a think tank, uh, last week, where I wasn't personally consulted about whether I agreed to an off-the-record stipulation. So, you know, I had was not bound by it in any sense. Uh, and so he starts advocating, Tyus Elwood does, this idea of a so-called humanitarian sea corridor imposed by NATO in the Black Sea to prevent Russia from advancing from uh, Mariupol to Odessa. Because the idea is if the Russian military seizes Odessa, that means Ukraine has now been landlocked and a major strategic objective by Russia has been achieved. Now, it's sort of interesting that a guy like Elwood would be advocating something as dramatic as a sea intervention, a NATO sea intervention, naval intervention. If uh, it was true, as we're often told, that Russia's strategic objectives are just being totally botched, right? If it's failing drastically, why do we see these radical measures being floated to counteract Russia's perceived advance. 
in any event, that's what uh, Tobias Elwood is advocating. And he's also saying something interesting, which is that more or less from the UK's perspective, from his perspective anyway, as, what, as to what the UK should do, the US can no longer be relied upon to be the initiator of these needed military remedies. Um, he, meaning Elwood, harkens back to the Afghanistan withdrawal last year as an indicator that the U.S. is retreating from the world and it's kind of, you know, giving up its leadership status. And therefore, the U.K. must assume a far more proactive role in uh, you know, leading the charge on these initiatives. And, you know, bear in mind, he's not saying that the U.S. will thereby just kind of sit it out and uh, wash its hands of Ukraine. No. The idea is that the U.K. merely has to be the instigator. And then once this naval intervention idea is actually launched, well, that essentially obligates the U.S. to also be militarily involved as it is this, you know, the leading kind of force within NATO, right? And it has these collective defense obligations uh, for NATO countries, in particular the U.K., but, you know, the, the brazenness is actually also pretty striking with which a guy like Elwood does this advocacy. You know, for example, he'll say that the UK needs to assemble a quote-unquote coalition of the willing. So he actually uses that phrase. And I don't know if you recall or if you're old enough to remember, but that was the exact terminology used for the participants in the uh, U.S. land invasion of Iraq, of which obviously – the UK was a member. It was a coalition of the willing, you know, included some other countries with far smaller contributions like Spain and Poland and such. Um, but in aggregate, they were called the coalition of the willing. But apparently, Elwood has no compunction about importing that same terminology into this new context. I guess he doesn't think that there's any, you know, uh, disreputable association with the Iraq invasion. He thinks, I guess, maybe it was just swell. I don't know. I would love to ask him, but they weren't accepting my questions at this think tank function. Um, so that might seem like an extreme view. So maybe you might think to yourself, oh, gee, well, that's just one conservative MP making some proposals to you know, stir the pot. We need not pay too much mind to it, even though he does happen to be the chairman of this committee that has a direct purview on defense policy, and uh, he's a conservative MP in the incumbent government is conservative. You know, you could say that, oh, well, maybe that's just worth bracketing and not getting too worked up about. Okay, maybe so. But then look at where there are other clamors coming from within the UK political culture for the exact same initiatives. It was amazing. I listened to this think tank event from Tobias Elwood. It was last Friday. Then on Sunday... I uh, stroll over to the newsstand here in London and uh, pick up a copy, as I do on Sundays when I'm here, uh, of uh, both The Observer, so basically you know, the Guardian's Sunday newspaper, and uh, The Times on Sunday. So The, the Times is Sunday edition. You know, they're kind of both – it's the convent, center-right and center-left newspapers, right, that are, have the most – 
perceived, you know, prestige or respectability. And I looked at the uh, unsigned editorial in the Observer, and this is basically what the newspaper is purporting to institutionally endorse with one unified voice. So there's no one author uh, tethered to it. It's done collectively. I mean, it is kind of a relic. I don't know why newspapers even bother with this whole facade any longer. Um, and actually, some newspapers have abolished this practice, but the Observer still adheres to it. And um, what they're doing, what they did in last Sunday's newspaper, was overtly endorse the very plan that Tobias Elwood, this conservative MP who you would think could potentially be their ideological nemesis, they're going out of their way and endorsing that plan. They're saying that the UK government must be far more aggressive militarily in Ukraine. So the liberal-slash-left opposition to Boris Johnson and the conservative government here is not on the grounds that they object to him being too cavalier, too militaristic, or too uh, short-sighted in its willingness to engage militarily in this conflict. No, no, no. They're saying that they're not being aggressive enough. So the observer, you know, this uh, bastion of mainstream, respectable liberal opinion endorses essentially overt NATO intervention, military intervention in uh, Ukraine last Sunday. So again, when we talk about when – I, when I make these references to this kind of gradual cascade of escalation, that's another example of it. So you have to be mindful of uh, the different uh, angles from which this escalation can come. And I do think that actually, you know, for better or worse, all, pretty much wor- for worse – uh, what the consensus views that sort of germinate within the media are a relevant factor to bear in mind. Um, so that's sort of mainstream left liberalism, right? But then let's also discuss the left, the quote-unquote left in the UK, right? And who do I mean by that, roughly speaking? Well, you know, it's the left of the Labour Party. Um, figures like Owen Jones, who's this journalist, who's a rabble rouser, and who um, you know wears his heart on his sleeve for his his left wing values. Uh, I would put him in this category. Uh, I would put you know factions within the uh, Labour Party that are maybe tied to certain trade unions. Um, and certain MPs. Right, uh, members of labor, members of parliament. Well, also last weekend, I uh, attended a fascinating event, and this was in uh, Westminster, so kind of like, you know the governmental corridor of central London. If you're not familiar where the par- parliament is located in Downing Street and so forth, and uh, there was a big rally held. Well, I mean, it wasn't massive, but it was sizable enough to make a bit of a fuss. And it was this left-wing pro-war rally. I mean, it's, it was sort of amazing. I, I almost never thought that I would see such a thing. Not that it's outside the realm of possibility. I know that you know leftism, whatever you define that as, isn't necessarily incompatible in every respect with <laughs> militarism or being pro-war. Uh, however, it's not the thing that you would immediately most associate with a left-wing political program, right? Uh, so, but you know, I show up. And uh, you know this is a rally organized by different by some of the biggest trade unions in the UK, associated with the Labour Party, 
uh, labor MPs who are considered more progressive, quote unquote, are addressing this rally. Uh, and uh, the MC, the leader, the uh, chief uh, instigator is this fella named uh, Paul Mason, who's a former, who's a journalist. Uh, he spent 13 years at the BBC, uh, spent a couple of years at the uh, Channel 4. And now, you know, writes all over the place and is advising everyone on how to stop fascism with his latest book and whatever. And, uh, yeah, he's basically leading this rally. He's an organizer. He's, uh, you know, he's manning the bullhorn and shouting and chanting and speechifying. And uh, this is considered one of the premier left-wing voices in the in England, as far as I know. Um, he has his critics, but he's, uh, you know, he was basically, you know, holding down the fort on behalf of the, uh, left, not just the you know, the, uh, milk toast liberals, right? No, the left, the fire breathing left, that's Paul Mason. And he's, uh, doing this rally where he's saying that the left, I mean, if I listened to his speech, he was declaring that the left and the trade union movement and, so on and so forth. They must get over whatever lingering fear they have of military intervention and fear of war in general and understand that this current conflict in Ukraine must be won on the battlefield on behalf of the, quote, working class. So Mason was essentially saying, you know, forget about Iraq, forget about Afghanistan. Yeah, that was sort of a bother. And you know, we were right to protest at the time, but we have to really change our perspective now and uh, arm Ukraine. And he was saying we have to keep the pressure up on our government, so on the conservative government, to con- send more arms to Ukraine. So that's the big left-wing demand now being foisted upon the conservative government, to intensify their arms funneling operation. I wish I was kidding about this or exaggerating. I'm not. I'm trying to be as sort of dispassionate as possible and just relaying to you the reality. Um, so they're having this like ostensibly oppositional rally right in front, right across the street from the uh, cabinet office in Whitehall, uh, which is you know Boris Johnson's cabinet with his own ministers and whatever. And you know, I I, I, I glance across the street. And I notice that you know, shimmering in the sunlight atop the building, the cabinet office building, is the Ukraine flag. And to me, it was a nice symbolic representation of how there's total agreement here. I mean, what are they, what are they so aggrieved is not being done that ought to be done? It seems like Boris Johnson is carrying out exactly the policy initiatives that these, these left-wing street protesters say they want to be done, except maybe he's not doing it intensely enough. And funnily, it's a mirror image of what's going on in the U.S., where Although Biden is doing this constant escalation routine, uh, not just rhetorically, but also militarily in terms of increasing the grade of the weaponry that's being dispatched, this latest batch that was announced a few days ago now includes attack helicopters and all kinds of new systems that had previously been seen as potentially even... The undertaking between the U.S. and Ukraine, so actually it's going to enable the U.S. to basically coordinate offensive operations, outwardly offensive operations by the Ukraine military against Russia. It's no longer even the pretense that it's merely defensive, even though that was never a coherent distinction 
regardless, because I mean, this idea that, oh, it's a, the grenade launchers are and the Stinger missiles are perfectly fine because they're, quote, defensive. Yeah. I'm sure, you know, if there were ever grenade launchers and missiles flooded into a territory adjoining the U.S., we'd be, you know, the top government officials would be okay with that because it's, quote, defensive. Um, but anyway, there's a total ideological convergence, uh, both in the U.S. and the U.K., around this issue. And the only disagreement is just as a matter of degree. Um, and, you know, hardly anybody in the media even points this out because they're also totally engrossed in the consensus. And it's a, it's a recipe for what we're seeing unfold right now, which is perpetual, unchecked escalation. I mean, there hasn't been a day on which the U.S. government in particular has sought to de-escalate rather than escalate since this began arguably even before the invasion was launched. And that's a whole other can of worms in terms of the diplomatic posture assumed by the U.S. prior to the invasion, but we'll bracket that for now. Post-invasion, there's never been a day on which, you know, there was, you know, you saw Biden and Blinken and Austin and or members of the Senate or the House really even at least claim to be interested in, in forging some kind of negotiated resolution. No, it's always about how much are we going to escalate, right? What's the acceptable scope of our obvious escalatory tack here? De-escalation is not even in the cards. Now, that's in contrast with China and India, which every time their government representatives address the topic, as far as I can tell, uh, particularly at the UN, they're always stressing the need for cessation of hostilities. Um, and cessation of hostilities just doesn't interest anyone in the U.S., apparently, at least who, anyone calling the shots policy-wise. And uh, we got pretty much, I think... <laughs> The final proof of this uh, this past week when the Pentagon convened this secret meeting, or I'm sorry, not secret, classified meeting, at uh, w- with the eight largest weapons manufacturers uh, with the premise that they all need to kind of gather together and figure out how to proceed in what would be a, quote, protracted conflict against Russia. That's how it was reported by Reuters. Now, I haven't seen any transcripts from this meeting yet, but I think we can probably infer what was discussed. Um, and, you know, it would be nice if we had a bit more of a skeptical media that could maybe try to, you know, chronicle some of this stuff, but no one does it. I mean, it's I, I, when I was at this rally uh, in uh, Westminster, I didn't see any media other than myself, but I'm like, are any media who was there to like cover it in a non-dopey fashion? Actually, I didn't see any dopey media come to think of it. I mean, there were people recording with their phones and whatever. Uh, maybe I missed it. Who knows? But uh, you know, I, so I spoke to one of the MPs who, who, who addressed the, the rally, delivered a speech. This guy named Alex Sobel, who you know he served in he was in Jeremy Corbyn's uh, front bench when Corbyn was Labor leader. Um, so he's got to be. He's not. A total rightist, like in within the labor party, right? No, he has supposedly some progressive bona fides. He's all into gender stuff and whatever. Um, and 
government here? Because it seems like what you say you want to be done is already being done. So what are you saying ought to be done? And he said, well, there's been a lack of support militarily for Ukraine. So he's saying that Boris Johnson needs to escalate the military commitment. And he actually said the same of NATO. He said NATO needs to be more involved. I mean, oftentimes these leftists will try to claim, and Paul Mason himself has done this, where, you know, we're not talking about NATO because they don't want to, they're, they're trying to like maintain their credibility amongst potentially skeptical leftists who might not be naturally inclined to favor a NATO led military intervention. They're trying to say, look, look, this isn't about NATO. We're somehow going to get the weaponry to Ukraine, I don't know, in a working class way, where all the workers are like leading convoys to heroically deliver them to their fellow comrades in the trade union movement or something in Ukraine. Well, no, I mean, operationally, it's being done through the US, the UK, and NATO, okay? Uh, mainly the U.S. Actually, I mean, they're the that's that's who's facilitating. I mean, I was there, right? I was in Yeshiv, Poland, where the U.S. is the one running this airport, where all the NATO weapons shipments are coming in. It's not, you know, the land of milk and honey, where you know everybody is. You know, these benevolent peace activists are running the weapons funneling operations. No, it's the U.S. All right, um, and. The U.S. is obviously the prime mover of NATO. So they do this little rhetorical sleight of hand where, you know, we're, we're only in this for, to help the working class. And it's like a leftist val, val, uh, value now to, to support this intervention. Uh, but it's not about valorizing NATO. We agree with you that there's some legitimate criticism of NATO. Well, I mean, you are in, a, in, in practice calling on everyone to support NATO. I mean, that's what this entails. Um, and, you know, so this is the ba- this, this should be an obvious extrapolation from the rhetoric and the, the mode of advocacy on display here, but it's just not really commented upon with any skepticism at all. And then when, so when I spoke to this labor MP, he was, um, saying that, you know, a negotiated resolution is not feasible right now because they have, Russia needs to be militarily defeated first. So he's in line with this whole maximalist military demand that you also often see echoed in the U.S. as well of uh, the no diplomatic accord being feasible until Russia is outright defeated militarily. So that means we could be in this for years and Decade. I mean, who knows how long? And it's not even clear what a military defeat would mean exactly. I mean, Russia has, has firm territorial control of various asp- various uh, parts of Ukraine at, at already now. I mean, Mariupol is pretty much in their control, uh, for one, as are other parts of eastern Ukraine. And I'm going to butcher the name, but this you know it's a city called Kherson and surrounding cities. So, like, what does it mean to military defeat Russia, to drive them out of those places? I mean, it's not even like, – again, this is why <laughs> I'm trying to hone in on the, the in, escalatory premises embedded in this rhetoric. So anyway, Alex Sobel, who again was in Corbyn's front bench, um, he says uh, one of the reasons why in addition to the need to military defeat Russia, that Russia can't be negotiated with this, this time, is that Russians don't understand peace. They only understand war. Now, I'm paraphrasing. That's essentially what the quote is. Uh, they only understand force, right? I mean, so it's an allusion to this 
concept you see floated pretty frequently. It used to really only be amongst like national security types. Like James Clapper would go around making a version of the same point during Russiagate and what have you. But it's this idea that there's like a genetic predisposition in Russians to not accept diplomacy, right? Or just to be kind of naturally disposed to engage in subterfuge or military adventurism or whatever. I mean, it actually is racist. I mean, in that they're assume they're 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 imbuing inborn qualities, inborn nefarious qualities to Russians on the basis of their genetic composition. I mean, so I don't know if what racism would be defined by if not that. Seems like the, actually the classic narrowly tailored definition, not the definition now. Where like anything slight, you know, one degree uh, rightward of the uh, latest kind of uh, gender. And fad activists, that's racist. And yeah, it can be racist if it's about gender, by the way. So that's, that's like how expansive the definition of racism has become. I would think this is actually the traditional definition in that you're ascribing sinister qualities to someone on the basis of their inborn racial characteristics, right? Oh, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe somebody can rebut me and tell me why I'm stupid for suggesting such a thing. Um, Anyway, so that was the point of view presented to me by uh, this guy, Alex Sobel. And it's interesting because, you know, I don't think anybody hardly in the British political class, whether they're MPs or they're military people or whatever, I don't think any of them – it seems almost bewildering to them to even be presented with an even lightly adversarial question about any of this. A question where the premise isn't shared that, of course, indefinite escalation in this military intervention is the ideal solution, Right. And you know the same go for the U.S. I mean, I'm almost, I'm almost jonesing to get back to the U.S. to see if I can ask American politicians the same questions. Um, but anyway, those are the fruits of my big intrepid investigative journalism here in in London, and maybe I'm on the verge of deportation now because I've just made so many people so upset. Um, so, yeah, uh, thanks for listening to my rant, and I'll go to some questioners. Uh, Greg, you are up. Hello again. Hey, Michael. I'm, I'm really hey. upset. I'm sorry. Do, uh, do you need a moment? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, yeah, that's some interesting points you're bringing up about England. I've been thinking about that, too, like looking at the Crimean War that happened and I'd recommend listening to people like Peter Zion. I think he's, I mean, I think he's smart, but I think he's definitely a prick, but he, he does interesting little tidbits, I think every day on kind of the geopolitical developments. And they're very, from the perspective of, I I would say like the kind of neoliberal national, national security state. And he's basically saying, Oh, if I was the one in power, I would sail a, a ship or a fleet, you know, towards the occupied ports that Russia holds in like South Ossetia, you know, for like a kind of freedom of navigation act now that they lost the Moskva and it sunk to the bottom of the ocean and, or the black sea. And, um, he, he's basically saying, Oh, we should, uh, poke and prod them. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know if that's how he truly feels like if he, really who is this again? I'm sorry. His name is Peter Zion. So Peter and then Z-E-I-H-A-N. And he formerly worked for Stratcom and then I think kind of went out on his own. But he has some lectures on kind of – he has – his 
thesis on why Russia has invaded is that it's a historical need for Russia to plug these seven gaps around its periphery and that Russia is in the process of doing that, or at least trying to do that, which entails war with NATO in the future, which I don't really understand in that. Like, I don't, I haven't read his books, I guess. So if I, I guess if I wanted more understanding, I could buy them, which I haven't done yet because I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm reading other books at the moment, but. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think I'll, I'll, uh, I'll look him up and. I was also wondering, have you seen I mean, all? It, it, yeah. Yes. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Have you seen all of the weapons like on Telegram, like going through the different parts of Eastern Europe and and like Poland, and they're all being like being shipped on trains, like all of these German troop carriers, artillery, mobile artillery guns. I've, I mean, not only I've seen not just NATO equipment that's being rolled up to the border, and yeah, I, I just think it's. It's, this is going to escalate. Well, yeah, I don't. I don't see how it can't. I mean, it's so it's absurd that the implications of this aren't being more clearly laid out to people. I mean, the big debate in in Germany right now. I mean, the first. <laughs> I don't know if you saw this. It's kind of funny in a perverse way. Earlier this week, the member of the governing coalition, uh, uh, I think it was the deputy prime minister in the Green Party. So, like, supposedly this eco friendly party that's you know against uh, nuclear power and all this uh they endorsed the sending of tanks german tanks into ukraine and then he like maybe slightly backtrack on it on it right so think about that the terms of the debate within the green party in germany is whether they're going to send tanks or maybe they're going to wait a, a week or so to send the tanks like that's the gap between the the competing v- points of view in in that context. Yeah. Uh, so what what does that tell you about how how much things have progressed, right? I mean, it's this steepening incline toward escalation, and you know, people yeah. will accuse me of being alarmist or paranoid or whatever. And you know, I'm not. I, I have never said that World War Three is going to start overnight. I can't tell you when it's going to happen if it, it's going to happen at all. All I can do is at, at this point chronicle again these incremental. And kind of uh, mounting examples of escalation that seem to be all going in, in, in the same direction. I mean, if somebody can identify a, a counterexample where there's de-escalation happening, please tell me, and I'll factor it into my no, cal- no, calculations mean, here. You, you saw that the Chinese flew in those those giant jumbo jets carrying anti-aircraft missiles and dropped them off in Serbia, and now they just announced, I think yesterday or today uh, that they're going to be doing a drill in the South China Sea around. Well, yeah, that's because that's because all the, you know, Lindsey Graham and Bob Menendez, the two biggest freaks maybe in the entire U S Senate. And Bob Menendez is my Senator, which is, which is, I, I, I am eternally ashamed for, Uh, you know, they decided that now of all times will be a, it will be a great opportunity to touch down in Taiwan when they know that China would view that as a major provo- provocation. Actually, Nancy Pelosi had been scheduled to go herself for the first time that any Speaker of the House would visit Taiwan since Newt Gingrich did it in 1997. Uh, but then she got COVID. And so taking her place are, you know, the very ca- cautious and reliable and sober adults in the room, Lindsey Graham and Bob Benenda. So they're now in Taiwan doing God knows what. And then sure enough... <laughs> Immediately afterwards, what does China do? I mean, they do what actually is the most predictable thing in the world, which is they they 
denounce the provocation, and they launch a military drill as a retaliatory action. I mean, is that really the most prudent thing to be instigating at this moment? Well, you know, Biden canceled those nuclear drills, which I do have to give him credit for. That is true. That is one example. Um, and, 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 and the thing that's really just crazy to me is that Biden is probably the only one of the only sane people other than his CIA chief or Richard Burns. All the other people around him, I think, are nuts. And I just think it's crazy that we're relying on. I mean, I don't know the situation in there, but it seems well, I mean, like I agree. Might I, agree. Be the I agree to an extent, but what it seems like the pattern is. I mean, I think it actually is crazy for the for the U.S. president to just be flippantly declaring that the president of Russia is guilty of genocide. I don't think that's a sane thing or a thing that you would do if you were trying to head off the crazies surrounding you. That's an extreme action, uh, rhetorically. And, and so are now, you know, he, apparently Biden was on the phone with Zelensky and he wasn't initially going to send these attack helicopters, but uh, Zelensky was just so convincing that they got off the phone and Biden sends the attack helicopters. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I think I, the way I put it is Biden seems like a, maybe a degree or two less insane than the median politician. Uh, but what that seems to just entail in practice is that Biden like needs that extra week or so to come around to whatever the latest interventionist gambit is. Yeah. I mean, I have one quick question because I was listening to Glenn Greenwald yesterday and he basically was saying what we're going through right now in terms of the media is kind of like a unique development in American history, which I don't agree with. I think it's a bellwether for the fact that the United States is heading down a war path when we start censoring people and start making certain views taboo, like during the Civil War, you know, uh, Lincoln implemented implemented certain very unconstitutional laws that uh, definitely prohibited people's freedom of speech. And I think that happened during the First World War and the Second World War. And to me, it just seems like a huge bellwether and like the whole part of the liberal populace. I just, this is anecdotal. I talked to a guy yesterday who was watching PBS and I've watched PBS my entire life and it's always seemed pretty balanced to me, but I was watching this like little clip and it, they were just saying the most like propagandistic like shit about Putin. And I think Putin is no saint, but it's just like calling him this like evil demon. And he's like gotten, he's the most dangerous he's ever been in 22 years. And I, I was holding, I, I, I ordered Mearsheimer just because I've been reading it. And I like, it, this guy was watching it and I was like, you know, this is could have all been, it was, this is all predicted by a lot of yeah. people. And he, what, started the right, yelling, uh, he started yelling at me basically. And I'll, I'll finish quickly. He started and give the next caller, but he started yelling at me and was like, I hate that Putin guy. He was supported by racist Trump and it all goes back to Trump. <laughs> yeah. They've all been like completely brainwashed. <laughs> everything, everything know. still goes back to trouble. I mean, that that actually really is, I think, a huge component of why the liberal fervor is so intense at the moment. It does for them really go all back to Trump, and this is a way to kind of somehow deliver a blow to Trump by proxy against Putin. I mean, it makes zero sense, but that's what's going on in their deluded. Minds. I was going to say that you know, at the right things are going, you might be thrown in prison simply for reading a John Mearsheimer text. Um, well, I'm also, also I don't, I don't, I'm also a Russian citizen, so there might. Be oh, that. oh, geez. Um, well, I was just going to say I don't want to overly personalize it, but when I was in uh, uh, Poland, 
last month. This guy, um, uh, Malcolm uh, Nance, he was, you know, who's the, you know, actually a pretty prominent media personality. He's a, he's a crazy person, but he's a prominent media personality. MSNBC contributor, what have you. Supposedly this big expert on intelligence matters and was like one of the most off the reservation uh, Russiagate, you know, uh, commentators. He uh, was calling on me to be thrown into the dirt and arrested by the uh, Polish military police simply because I took a few photos from public sidewalks of like U.S. slash Polish military installations. And, you know, of course, you know, all these people who, you know, light their hair on fire and run around in circles when – you know, Trump says something slightly uh, unkind about a CNN anchor. Um, that's like the, this big infringement on press freedom. Nobody said anything about this call from Malcolm Nance, and I'm not saying they ought to or they, that that I'm a martyr or anything. Just noting that, you know, I do think that we are in a trajectory toward more and more intense censorship. And uh, yeah, that's goes that's hand to hand with entering into this wartime posture. When I was in uh, the EU. And actually, the same as in the UK. I mean, they've just pretty much just totally banned our, uh, RT. And I'm, you know, I'm not saying that RT is this wonderful source of pure-hearted knowledge or anything. But you know, it is sort of striking when you're flipping through the TV channels and the channel that RT used to be broadcast on in like in Poland is now just a, uh, dead air, um, and you can't load it up on your YouTube app anymore. I mean, so you know who, that they've uh, they they've planted the seed there. Anyway, yeah, uh, thanks. Just, yes, they, they thanks, certainly right. did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, hello, Suze, you're up. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. How are you? Good. Um, so, yeah, I just want to touch on a couple things that you talked about. Uh, first of all, the you know, you talked about them trying to brand, like, sending aid to Ukraine as military aid to Ukraine as a working class movement. And everything, which is really comical. I don't know if you saw those uh, protests in Italy, like workers in Italy were protesting when they found out that they had been sending military aid and weapons to Ukraine because they didn't support that. They didn't want to. They know that war is bad for the workers um, and dangerous to transport the weapons, too. I did see that. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And then, yeah, just want to touch on, you know, that all this ridiculous... Insane- I mean, I, I, hold on. I'll just on that thing from Italy, which I did see. Yeah, I think there was another example of that in Greece, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I, they seem like isolated incidents to me. Um, sorry, sorry, you dropped out or my internet dropped out for a second. So I, I think you were talking about in Italy that these uh, workers that was at an airport, they blocked a shipment of weaponry, uh, like an aerial shipment of weaponry, Going into Ukraine, yeah, yeah. I mean, that seems like an isolated. It seems like an isolated incident, unfortunately. And apparently, at least in the UK, there's this segment of organized labor that's uh, taking part in a pro-war mobilization. And because you know their logic is that they're doing it out of solidarity with the workers of Ukraine, right? So in Ukraine, you're allowed to have a union, and in Russia, you're not. I mean, I don't know if that's true exactly, but that's what they're saying. Um. And, you know, the, when the Donbass was – when the war started in the Donbass in 2014, the first thing they did was go after the trade unionists. And it's funny because actually one of the um, – a representative from one of the largest tr- unions in the UK called Unison, which is like a lot of public sector workers and stuff, um, 
in this act of you know solidarity with their uh, labor comrades, she read aloud a statement that had been sent to her from the head of one of the trade unions in Ukraine. And uh, that statement that this woman read included a call to actually close the – secure the Ukrainian sky. So it was a, a no-fly zone demand. And uh, she just read it aloud at this rally and actually spoke to her afterwards and said, like, hey, did I hear that correctly? Did you actually <laughs> call for a no-fly zone? She says, yeah, I'm not sure I agree with that. But, you know, we have to give them a, these uh, Ukrainian colleagues of our, of ours a voice, which is – I said, well, I mean, <laughs> that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is that you just read aloud a demand to initiate World War III, which is kind of you know insane. So I don't care like what solidar- solidaristic uh, impetus you're citing as a justification for that. It seems like it ought to be trumped by the undesirability of launching World War III, but you know, she didn't agree. Anyway. Yeah, uh, yeah. I also was reading some stuff about um, from union people in Ukraine and uh, I was reading one that, uh, you know, very against the war, but didn't call for any sort of close the sky. Um, but then also reading about, you know, what changed for workers after the coup in 2014 and when, you know, more it, the basically Ukraine opened up and had those, you know, IMF, um, you know, stipulations they had to follow. And actually there was a bunch of strikes in a mine that's owned by that guy Kolomoisky who funds Zelensky um, where I mean, right, right, yeah. the, the conditions in the mine just it deteriorated so significantly by 2019 that a worker like died in the mine because of the equipment they were on were so old and nothing was getting fixed and nothing was safe um, that they were using and they were basically just blaming it on the you know Europeanization Westernization of Ukraine, um, but yeah, the other thing that I wanted to mention was yeah, yeah I mean just 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 on that just on that point quickly I don't you know I'm just sort of trying to relay what the state of the rationale of these British left wing activists was for their pro war rally where they're marching down the streets in front of the Ministry of Defense and beckoning actually the funniest part was when Paul Mason who's this journalist was on the bullhorn and he was beckoning. The Ministry of Defense, which we marched right past, for its you know, workers inside to come out and join the march with them. And I tried to ask Paul Mason, you know, is this the first march in history that purports to be left-wing slash anti-war where the Ministry of Defense in a conservative government is viewed as a natural ally? And if he wouldn't talk to me. He called me a Putin shell. Um, but you know, he does seem to be – Paul Mason, who was like, the ringleader here, uh, he apparently had gone to – Kiev just before the war and was conferring with you know his comrades in the labor movement and became more and more radicalized about the justness of this cause. So uh, I, I don't take really at face value much of anything he says about supposedly this organized labor rationale for why the working class would prosper if Ukraine is victorious or whatever. Uh, you know, and I think there's probably uh, uh, another side to that story and you allude to some of it with this oligarchic sponsor of Zelensky, you know, running these mines that seem to uh, not necessarily be in the best run uh, managed in such a way that is naturally uh, supportive of the worker. Um, but yeah, anyway. Yeah, uh, 
And I think like it just also speaks to how divided Ukraine is. I mean, I think this mine was in more of the Donbass region, not the separatist regions, but it was definitely more Eastern Ukraine than Western Ukraine. So I could see it being very different viewpoints of labor there um, where there's more of a Russian population too uh, and might already be unhappy with the way politics has gone since 2014. Um, yeah. yeah but, and do you have another point? Um, Anti-Russian racism, I think, like, yeah, I mean, you seemed like you were worried about getting pushback for anti actually calling it racism, but I think it's, like, a very real thing historically. I mean... Well, on, like only Hitler, in the sense like, that I'm a cognizant that the accusation of racism has been wielded so sort of frivolously, even more so in the past couple years, that... I just wanted to emphasize that you know what I'm talking about here does seem to fit just the classical, almost indisputable definition of what racism is. It's not like this more abstract slur that you can just fling at everybody who you don't like. Right? That's that was the point I was trying to make. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not simply like you didn't, you know, you know, support my whatever woke thing, and now you're racist. But yeah, like just I think. It goes back to even like Hitler saying that Russians are a rare mixture in bestial cruelty and have an inconceivable gift for lying and want to impose their bloody oppression on the whole world. Like this, I mean, the things that these people are saying that are so anti-Russian and want to act like these Russians are, you know, not even human. They don't understand simple things like empathy, like I think it's very insidious and really worth uh, calling out when you hear it because it's pretty terrifying. They're just basically sounding exactly like Hitler. Well, I remember the neocons making similar arguments about why the Middle East needed to be taught a lesson. I mean, Charles Krauthammer yeah. would say that you know they you know all the what they you know what these Islamists or what the Middle East they only understand force, so we have to show them who's boss. I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, just kind of summarizing. But he, I think he said something almost pretty close to that, right? And that was repeated a lot. Um, and, you know, it's, a, it's almost the same sort of logic. It's just, you know, whoever is in the geopolitical uh, line of fire, you know, apparently they're, have something, they have something that's just genetically or uh, intrinsically off about them where they can't be reasoned with. And the only way to resolve any conflict that they might be party to is to maximize the use of military force. Yeah, it's almost like the U.S. security state is like the new Hitler in a way. Well. <laughs> um, but also shout out Mateo in the chat. He's really stupid. Fuck that guy. And he's really stupid. Okay, thank you. You are up. Hey, Michael. How are you? I'm doing okay. How about you? I'm good. Thank you. Thanks so much. So uh, the bulk of your uh, reporting, actually, for the last two weeks has been like the uh, uh, the, the Western countries or the West in general wants to escalate the war and, and kind of like make it, as they use the term, like make it a second Afghanistan, you know, for Russia. So... And but I don't know they they use that phrase you know to make it to make it a second Afghanistan but 
and nobody has really asked you know that Ukraine and Afghanistan are two very different countries two different regions when the Soviet Union actually invaded Afghanistan at that time I mean they didn't have any cultural linguistic um, advantage actually in Afghanistan as they have actually in Ukraine and the train geography is completely different uh, but uh, important factor too so it means that sending uh, weapons to Ukraine which just means that you know they will just kill more civilians and Ukrainians and second point is that a lot of uh, people kind of like they claim that you know even the parts of uh, Ukraine which are like sympathetic uh, to the Russians they say that well those parts are now because of what Russia has done uh, they are now going to be like anti-Russian I would think the opposite I mean the eastern part of uh, Ukraine east east uh, east east, uh, east part of the is going to be like more sympathetic to Russia because they think that if this time they if Russia loses the war and the Ukrainian nationalists take over the whole country those Russian speakers are just gone I mean they won't be they don't have any chance they won't have even if they let them live they won't be able to have any say in Ukrainian politics so those parts of Russia are going to be more sympathetic to Russia now than they were before I don't know what do you think about it Yeah, so sorry about that. I was just fixing my uh, internet. Um, well, yeah, I think uh, clearly this Ukraine war is much higher stakes, uh, and not to diminish the severity of the, of the Afghanistan proxy war that the U.S. waged in, uh, in the 80s against the Soviet Union. Um, but clearly there's, there's higher stakes here in terms of the prospect of wider escalation. I don't think... I mean, I don't, I'm not an expert on the subject or haven't intensively studied, but I don't, I'm not aware of anyone warning that Afghanistan was going to escalate to like a World War III type scenario, right? Or that nuclear response or the, you know, a, nu- a nuclear exchange might arise from it. And even over the course of this Ukraine war, you've had instances where, instances where uh, now there have, there have been explosions inside Russian territory. And uh, I, I believe that Russia did accuse the Ministry of Defense did accuse Ukraine of committing some sort of strike on uh, in uh, Belograd uh, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, even just over the past couple of days, there have been accusations of Ukraine uh, offensive actions within uh, Russia. Um, and you know that was never really. A prospect, as far as I know, uh, in terms of the Afghanistan situation, in terms of uh, like who's going to like what what is the evolution of allegiance going to be in Eastern Ukraine? I mean, it's hard for me to say. You know, that's a that's a dimension of this that I would need to have a lot more firsthand familiarity with in terms in order to opine on with much confidence. I will note that I have seen. In admittedly, some of these Russian Telegram channels, so you got to take them with some grain of salt. But they they do post videos of troops advancing into these uh, towns and villages and stuff and being applauded and 
greeted. And that stuff never really gets shown in the Western media where Russia is depicted as viewed by everybody in Ukraine as this horrible oppressor, right? And actually a week or so, a couple of days ago or earlier this week, I uh, posted a um, a BBC World Service clip where the journalist was going in around eastern Ukraine and talking to women who blamed the war on uh, Zelensky. I mean, these are Ukrainian citizens, right? So that's clearly a demographic. Uh, whether or not they're more uh, inclined to, to have an allegiance with Russia or less inclined now, I, it's hard for me to say with much certitude. Um, you know, I, I definitely know one of the dominant narratives has been that, you know, Putin miscalculated in, in, the, in the West anyway. One of the dominant narratives has been that Putin miscalculated and one of the facets of this miscalculation is that he's unified Ukrainians across like identities. And now even those factions within the, in the, in the eastern part of the country are more uh, kind of wholly Ukrainian in their orientation and they don't like Russia anymore. Right? I mean, is that true? I don't know. Might be true around the margins. I do think that aggressive military interventions uh, often backfire, so it wouldn't surprise me at all if it's true. Uh, but at the same time, I could see it being potentially not true, especially if the war drags on and maybe there's some alienation with how the Ukraine military is conducting itself in certain of these areas or what have you. Um, you know, it's probably going to be a test of that whole theory uh, on the offing in the coming days where if you... Uh, take any of these prognostications as accurate, you know, there's probably going to be this huge Donbass uh, offensive uh, launching in any, uh, any, any minute, apparently. Um, so we'll have to see. All right. Yes. Since you are, since you are, uh, since you are uh, in Britain, I would ask you something about uh, Britain. I mean, the level of like anti-Russian sentiment or Russia, anti-Russian rhetoric uh, coming from co- coming from London or Britain is it's, it's like way more aggressive than than like people in Washington. I've, I've actually I've never understood it actually to be honest. Still, like I read about it a lot. I read a lot of. I follow a lot of uh, thinkers, and I mean. The British uh, intellectuals who actually shape, you know, the British uh, opinion. But I have never understood. I've never really understood that. You know, what's what's I don't know what's going on with the British. They are two leaders, like unbelievable. Yeah, I don't have a great explanation for it either. You know, I was actually here last summer during the Afghanistan withdrawal, and what I was sort of slightly bewildered uh, by the fervor and intensity of the rhetoric, really even the melodrama, where they would, you know, convene these searing uh, sessions of parliament and rising to denounce, they even denounced, you know, Biden as though he were the president of the UK somehow for betraying this noble uh, military commitment and leaving the Afghans in the lurch. And it was in some sense, yeah, it was more extreme. Then even in the U.S., I, I, I think there are ways in which actually the U.S. rhetoric is comparable, comparably extreme, if, if not more so in certain respects. But it's close. Like it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's not clear who wins out on that in that race. You know, um, 
I, th- I think it might have something to do with the insularity of the media environment here. I mean, uh, it's a lot. It, it seems to be quite a bit more uh, incestuous, and so like the costs of defying any consensus are higher. Um, and so that I think kind of breeds a bit more of conformity. Um, I don't know. That's kind of a working theory. Uh, and there's plenty of concern. There's plenty of conformity in the U.S. as well. It's just a different landscape, you know. Um, yes. Anyway, uh, that's that's one. Yep. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Nasser. Thank you. All right. Uh, I'll go to Johnny, and then uh, we will wrap up. Because Greg, as much I'll as I up. love you, I don't need to talk to you again just yet. <laughs> go ahead, Johnny. <laughs> Hey, Michael, how you doing, man? It's always uh, great to hear uh, some interesting on-the-ground report uh, in, in great contrast to the endless supply of uh, armchair analysts who uh, never leave the armchair. So thanks again for your original reporting, man. It's always <laughs> always, interesting. <laughs> always yeah. interesting to hear what you've got, man. You've always got some interesting nugget or two. I can't, I can't put down armchair reporting too much because I do have to spend a lot of time in an armchair, you know, if I'm writing or just on the computer. And I think it's... It's how you use your armchair. It's how you conduct your armchair reporting. Because sometimes, like, I mean, true, true. let's face it, the internet has a lot of content available on it, and sometimes it's worth it to just sit on your computer and collate stuff, you know, and uh, you know, find nuggets that maybe people have overlooked. So that can sometimes be worthwhile. Uh, but yeah, I do try to supplement it with as as to the extent that's reasonable uh, on on ground uh, on the ground observations and whatever. Yeah, not to mention the low overhead of staying on the couch, right? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty comfy too. It's a lot more complicated to go fly around, uh, fly around different places, right? <laughs> yes, uh, yes, anyway, but you know, I, anyway, I, I, uh, I sacrifice for for my followers on Colin and Substack and everywhere <laughs> else. So I, uh, I've answered, I've answered the call. <laughs> Um, uh, hey, I, I just want to draw. I mean, I guess uh, pose a couple of questions um, just for for a, a, you know a, an additional nugget uh, to enter into the ether. Um, it's interesting how Newsweek. I don't think this is the first one I've seen from them that uh, they were speaking to a DIA analyst who's very much throwing cold water on the. Um, the genocide charges and the Buka massacre. And I threw that one in the chat. If it's, it might be worth a look. Uh, it's just, it's just interesting that Newsweek of all places is talking to somebody who's got a very different take on things than, than the bizarre level of uniformity that you see in the media. Um, and you haven't been to France at all. I know you were in Poland for a stretch. You were in the UK. I'm just curious because I'm looking at that as a flashpoint as the next place significant elections are happening. And I'm just it's it can be hard to get a feel. You know, sometimes you can get it from Poland. It can be hard to get a feel for where the gap might be between political and media elites, which looks pretty well uniform and lockstep in the U.S. as well as the U.K., um, you know, a gap between those elites and where average people are. I mean, we saw it to some degree, obviously, Democratic partisans aside, Democratic Party partisans aside in the U.S. But, you know, when it came to midterms, when it came to elections, there was a lot uh, there was a lot of gas air between where the Democratic Party wanted the, the talking points and the agenda to be, which is primarily around Russiagate and what ordinary voters were really interested in, which is, you know, things like health care and the economy and jobs and so forth. And, um, you know, it's interesting to see there's a gap, you know. The polls look bad for Biden in spite of the super awesome economy. And all we're hearing about lately is, you know, Ukraine, Ukraine and the 
the strong rhetoric, um, you know, coming out of the White House and, you know, uh, Biden's clearly being pulled right by the elite consensus. You know, I mean, we were we were totally not into sending offensive, whatever that means, weapons. But now, no, you know, now it's like how many offensive weapons? Well, now in the Wall Street Journal, they're admitting that there's no distinction between offensive and defensive. It was always it was always just PR anyway. I mean, it's just such a bizarre thing. Well, yeah, you know, it's clear Biden uh, is being pulled right. Yeah, well, eh, I mean. I don't think it's intrinsically right to. I mean, it's a, maybe, it's, right, maybe, maybe yeah, in a hawkish direction because you know there are plenty of intense hawks who are coming at it as I've tried to document from a left wing perspective at this point. So I almost would not even reduce it to right versus and left. Certain, and to, yeah. there are certainly plenty of conservative veterans who very much pulled thing who would very yeah, much yeah, like exactly. de-escalation on it. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm just curious now. How on the point of France, going. though, I mean, before I forget, ahead, yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, actually, I actually, I'm actually I am going to go to uh, France for uh, in the run-up to the second round of the elections. Um, so I'll uh, try to do some reporting on that and yeah, uh, br- brush up on my uh, French linguistics skills. So bonsoir to everyone. Um, uh, but you know, actually, you know, one of my uh, preliminary observations, at least from the first round of voting in France, was that the candidates who at various points have called not just for reform to NATO or have criticized NATO, but have called for withdrawing from NATO, or taking France out of NATO, received I lost the majority received. of the... Oh man, um, Mel and Sean over here then. And um and uh and the think I calling for a full extrication of France from NATO but she does want to remove from the command structure or something like that so she has a very NATO skeptical view and uh, basically yeah. views it as a just a means of Forcing France to submit to the U.S., which I think is probably right. Uh, but it's sort of interesting in the U.S. because I, I, I'm uh, interesting in France because even if Macron does win, which I think is probably more likely, it's still not going to be like a full validation of NATO, right? Because I mean, Macron has also tried to carry on in some sense this you know De Gaulle type legacy and forge an independent French foreign policy, right? And has uh, in the past been very much critical of NATO himself. I think uh, in two thousand a few years ago, he called it brain dead. Um, and you know, so, you know, sounded quote unquote Trumpist or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think it is going to be interesting how uh, the outcome of the French election is portrayed in terms of this whole concept that you know NATO has never been more unified. That's the cliche that gets repeated ad nauseum in the U.S. You know, that Biden supposedly is accomplished this amazing feat of multilateralism by unifying NATO like never before. And uh, it's sort of odd because, <laughs> you know, the only electoral outcomes we have since the invasion uh, started, it, number one in Hungary where um, Orban does not share the conventional view of NATO in terms of, you know, allowing the transit of weaponry into Ukraine and whatnot. I mean, actually, he actually is pro-NATO in the sense that he's allowed for these new uh, battle groups to be uh, deployed to Hungary, uh, just, you know, he, he departs from this one little facet of NATO's current consensus view and is not allowing uh, offensive weaponry to go directly from Hungary into Ukraine. And, uh, you know, that supposedly makes him this horrible right-wing extremist. Um, you know, Le Pen maybe is slightly more toward that uh, point of view and maybe more critical in certain respects. But it's it, it's not like... 
Macron versus Le Pen is this neat referendum on like NATO pro or con, right? I mean, they're they're both critical in different respects. And, uh, you know, Macron famously tried to sort of circumvent the U.S. and doing this last-ditch diplomatic entreaty to Putin and, uh, you know, has even maintained contact with Putin as the war has progressed. And I know he's been criticized for that as, you know, engaging in a futile endeavor um, and even uh, being accused of somehow like legitimating Putin by even you know, daring to talk to him. Um, so, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, not, it's not a neat kind of um, – like yes or no, I, I, I or nay uh, kind of proposition in, in France. But nonetheless, I am going to try to go and uh, do some reporting on it in the next week or two. So Yeah, and in the last last question before I hop off, uh, I'm just curious about the – I mean it, it just doesn't seem like there's any indications this war is going to end anytime soon. And the longer this goes on, we have to start thinking about you know upcoming winter and there's the, the obvious gas problem. Uh, what I mean, if we're going to start shipping all our, you know, liquid natural, liquefied natural gas, I know you're from the East Coast and I am too. I mean, you know, gas is a big portion of the heat here. Uh, I mean, if we're going to be shipping all our liquefied natural gas east, which we don't even have the port capacity to do, and we're going to supposed to supposed to bail out the Europeans uh, from having to use Russian gas. I mean, how's that going to how are we square in that circle? Um, with that one, I'll, I'll, I'll hop on. Good question. Well, I mean, it's sort of, it seems like, is anyone this thinking whole, this through? Cause I don't think well, so. I mean, it seems inconsistent with this whole idea that, you know, Biden is going to be the first thing, you know, this huge green president and we're going to get off fossil fuels. I know natural, you know, I don't know. Are we somehow going to simultaneously supply Europe with, um, fuel and also, you know, get, you know, stop. Pumping carbon into the atmosphere—it seems like they seem like potentially contradictory, potentially contradictory goals, right? Um, but I don't know. I mean, your guess is as good as mine in terms of how that's going to unfold. I think actually it has been announced in the UK that they're going to firm, uh, 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 totally at least the the the, uh, the quote unquote goal is to totally cut themselves off from all Russian gas and uh, oil by the end of this year. Um, so I don't know. I'm not. I, I try to avoid. I found uh, it's uh, prudent for me to avoid trying to do the speculation and guesswork because it just comes back to bite me. Um, and you know, th- th- there's more than enough on my plate to just kind of try to analyze what's happening right now. Actually, just to, I'll end with an anecdote. I was in a you know one of these sort of classic black cabs in London yesterday, and uh, I saw a written sort of letter or note that had been pasted up on, up on the uh, that kind of clear divider in the in the cab sure enough it was the you know the cabbie himself had written it the cab driver had written it said you know any uh, visa or mastercard or anything now that has connections to a russian bank i'm sorry but we cannot now accept and not because the the driver gave a crap about it or the driver thought it was somehow you know this noble ambition to uh <laughs> Cut off all financial transactions emanating out of Russia, but because that's the function of the sanctions. So he's had, uh, you know, uh, customers who I mean, I guess he didn't vet as being Russian, and why would he? That's absurd. But they've gone and tried to pay for their cab ride in London, and they find out their their card doesn't work because of the because of because uh, sanctions have cut them off. And you know, I don't know who that is supposed to be benefiting in, in fact at least based on what this driver told me it just is generating resentment against the uk because <laughs> they you know they're they're the ones who have taken this action in concert with the us and the eu obviously to uh 
severely restrict the ability of, of just ordinary Russians who have no connection at all to the government to engage in just basic commerce. Um, so I don't know. I mean, are we ending the war somehow or are we really, you know, sticking it to the aggressors by uh, preventing just random Russians in London from paying for their cab ride? I don't know. seems like a bit far-fetched to me. Uh, anyway, uh, thanks everybody for tuning in once again. And uh, like I mentioned earlier, uh, take a look at that Substack that I published yesterday. If you're interested, plenty of details in there that I didn't get a chance to discuss in this call-in. And uh, we'll talk again within a couple days. So uh, take care. Bye.